Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 9, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Today, we'll be featuring another short interview, my friend and author Michael Kiefer, putting ourselves, as we say, in the unwashed sandals of the disciples who learned spiritual disciplines directly from experiencing Jesus relationally. So, as you know, we're in the midst of a year-long sort of uh, pursuit of all things grit. Uh, What kind of grit, what kind of spiritual grit does it take to follow Jesus, and where do we get the grit that's necessary for that? Uh, My book, Spiritual Grit, is coming out in um, late April, and it's an exploration of how we get the core strength that Jesus has to live our everyday life, and then leaning into the ways that Jesus grew grit in the people that he met, what can we learn from those ways, and how can they be threaded into our own lives? So in in this part of the year, we're focusing on some of what you, what you might call the basics of following Jesus, and we're in the midst of exploring three of the, those basics through the little portal of three little books that, that Michael Kiefer has written. Uh, they're called um, How Do I Pray?, which we if you missed that episode, that was uh, episode seven. Uh, if you want to go back and, and take a listen to that one, that's focused on how do we have a more conversational, normal, everyday relationship with Jesus. So that little one, little book is called How Do I Pray? Today we're going to be focusing on how do I read the Bible, and then in a couple of weeks we'll um, talk with Michael again about how do I know God's will. So Today, as I mentioned, we're going to focus on some of the biggest fallacies connected to the Bible and our reading of the Bible, and we're going to explore the, the point and the purpose of, of reading it from, you know, what I think is a kind of an obvious perspective, but one that we just don't often consider. How did Jesus himself interact with Scripture in his own life? I mean, if, if we're paying ridiculous attention to Jesus and following him um, and wanting his the modeling of how he lived his life to soak into us, why don't we ever pay attention to his his relationship with Scripture? Because he had one. So that's how we're going to explore this today. And I think we have a relatively unexamined relationship with the Bible, actually, Uh, especially if you've grown up in the Church. It's sort of like we have a default setting with this. So just last week, we did a field test for a new discipleship resource that we're working on right now. It's called Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience, and I've been intimately involved in helping create this uh, experience, and we had uh, people from all over the country out here for three days last week, and we were taking them through the first version of this. And uh, one of the things that we did with this group in one of the sessions that uh, has never been done before, I know because myself and our little team that's creating this created it for the first time, it was a four corners kind of activity where you had to choose a quadrant of the room to go to based on how you related to the Bible when you were young. So one of the corners was the dust gatherer, 
So did you grow up in a home where you kind of your family had a Bible, but it was basically an ornament, or a, you know, a, a something that you had in your house that was important for you and others to see that you had it, but it never nobody ever cracked the the cover of that thing. So was the Bible like a dust gatherer when you were growing up, or was it like treated like an instruction manual, or was it treated like a reference book, or was it treated like God's love story? So these are the four quadrants we ask people to go to representing how they saw the Bible when they were young. And I can tell you, there wasn't a single person in the corner of the Bible as God's love story. So not a single person in the room, when they were a kid, experienced the Bible or saw the Bible as God's love story to them, which is, you know, it's like a punch to the gut when you think about it. And then we asked them after that to move to a new quadrant if their perspective on the Bible had changed since then, and now that they were an adult. And most people moved during that experience, and most people, almost the whole room, moved to God's love story. So they had uh, moved in their perspective from whatever it had been before to something more like, uh, this is the story of God that He has told about Himself that is His love for us. So when we are growing up in this mindset that the Bible is other than what it actually is, it can really affect our willingness or our ability to read it. We're also conditioned to make coverage the goal. It's, uh, I can kind of compare this to like CrossFit, so or working out in some kind of regular workout that you do. I, I got to get my reps in, and once I get my reps in, I feel okay about it. So most Bible reading plans, by the way, make coverage and quantity the, the goal of it. Uh, in the end, it's, it's getting your reps in, uh, checking off the box. So uh, we also have that kind of embedded as a default setting in us. And, you know, the Church has conditioned us to treat Bible reading as sort of an academic thing as well. Now that you're a believer, you got to start doing your homework. you, know, you got to get the work in. And uh, it doesn't really frame the Bible as an exciting, adventurous, refreshing source of connection to relationship with Jesus. So uh, that's why we get up in the morning and early and try to read our Bible, because, you know, that's what we're supposed to do to kind of stay connected or to, to do the things we're supposed to do that we've been told we're supposed to do in the Christian life. So so let's move into this interview I did with Michael Kiefer now. He's the author of these three little Jesus-centered practical guys I just mentioned that are releasing actually today, the day you're hearing this, um, and these little practical guides, by the way, are a response to what we heard you and a lot of others say that they really need in their life, that that some of these basic things, um, we even if we've grown up in the Church, we just never learned how to do some of these basic things. So these practical guides are really, really easy to read. They're, uh, Michael's style of writing is very uh, enjoyable and funny and insightful at the same time. So Again, let's let's dive right now into my short interview with Michael about how to read the Bible. All right, Michael, I'd like to talk to you first about your own history of relationship to the Bible. It sounds funny to talk about your relationship to a it book, does. but it does. But what you know, I know that you had kind of a brief stint as a pastor before you mm-hmm. were run out of town with pitchforks, and <laughs> and. So you're writing this book about how to read the Bible. It must have conjured up your own relationship with the Bible over time. It did. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was raised in a church that held that the Bible was literally true. Every word literally true, inspired, infallible, 
Was that your history as well? I don't know if I if they ever approached it as every word was infallible. You know, I my in my upbringing is probably similar to yours that you're taught to very much respect. Mm. You know what the the exact words of the Bible. So yeah, I think respect. Uh, you guys were probably heresy as far as we were <laughs> concerned. We respected it to the point almost of worshiping the Bible. In that, if every word is literally true, and you, I came up in Sunday school kind of kind of time, then you start running into literary devices and metaphor hyperbole. Yeah, and you realize well, it's mostly. Literally true. Yeah, the things like cutting out your eye and things like that. that. Yeah, and tearing out your eye because some girl's cute in youth group, that's not... That's not. Yeah, I, that would be in the realm of metaphor. <laughs> now you tell me. <laughs> but, but, you know, the thing is, that, that set up a really kind of frustrating relationship I had with the Bible, which was trying to understand what part of this should I take literally, what part shouldn't I take literally, um, how do I interact with it? And I can't find people that always agree about that. So it was as if it, going to the Bible for me was a lot like walking through a minefield. Mm. And I'm not sure where to plant my feet. And, and you're right. There's a, there's a whole problem with the idea of a relationship with the Bible. Bible never asks for a relationship. God does. So as you were writing a book trying to help people uh, kind of grow in how mm. they read the Bible so that it becomes less of a academic thing and more of a fuel for their relationship. So what what kinds of things uh, sort of came up for you, challenges that came up for you as you started to dive into this? Well, I, for many people, I think, as for me, when I was uh, uh, stepping away from the Bible for a while and then coming back, it's a brick of a book. I mean, we're talking a thousand plus pages. Um, the the first Bible I was ever given had little King James and four columns, impossible to understand, possible to read. And I ran into this um, difficulty understanding what the Bible was. I knew what it was important. I knew it was what I was supposed to do with it. And that frustration fueled my younger years. When I was a pastor, what what I finally discovered was I don't really care what you think about whether or not Noah literally had an ark. I don't really care what you—I'm not going to debate with you um, every Bible passage. What I really want to know is, what do you know about Jesus, and what do you think of him? Because if you come to a relationship with Jesus, you're going to discover he had a lot to say in a very positive way about the First Testament, about the Old Testament. So I'm not worried about all that stuff. That can become a huge barrier when you're having to do apologetics around every Bible verse. So that is what fuels my understanding uh, and my interest in reading the Bible now is much more about, I'm not worried about discovering the Bible facts. I'm really curious as to how Jesus fits in and what he has to say about those things. So your Jesus-centered Bible was very helpful to me because that basically saved me a lot more work. That's called an organic plug for the Jesus-centered Bible. It flowed right out of his mouth. It did, and and honestly so. I think that because that addresses what's difficult for many of us, which is which part of this is important and which isn't. I can't have 1,200 pages of everything is an A priority. And help me at least focus. And when you look through the lens of who's Jesus and what's he trying to do here, then that really makes it much easier to be interested in the Bible. Yeah. And if you're a new listener, by the way, and you've never heard of the Jesus-centered Bible, I'm the general editor of that thing, 
and uh, we'll have a link for that on the podcast page uh, so you can check it out. But what makes it different is that we spent two years adding about a dozen features to the Bible that help you, wherever you're reading in the Bible, to center your focus on Jesus, which is really why the Bible was written. It was a story uh, written over thousands of years, all of it intended to orbit around the person of Jesus. Uh, the Old Testament sort of paves the way for Jesus, and the Gospels describe him, and the the rest of the New Testament describes what it looks like to follow him. And, mm-hmm. and so the whole thing orbits around him. So we added all of these special features to help you to focus well on Jesus. And one of the things that we found out later, after the fact, that had never been done in a Bible before is something we call the blue letters in the Old Testament, where Ken Castor and I, my friend who's a professor at Crown College, spent many weeks together, uh, him <laughs> living in my house uh, off and on, because he's from Minnesota, I live in Denver, he came and lived at my house off and on for many weeks, marching through the Old Testament finding every place that we could find as we marched through that pointed to Jesus in some way or another. And we actually had to limit ourselves at one point, uh, because we realized we were finding so many that the Bible is going to be too big uh, with all this added stuff in it. So we limited ourselves to 700 of these, and we highlighted in blue these places that point to Jesus, and then we wrote a little like uh, blue caption box next to each one explaining the connection. So so I encourage you, if you've not heard of the Jesus Center Bible, check it out. One of the things you said there that was interesting, you, you start off by saying kind of the Bible is kind of a brick of a book, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that can be intimidating for people. Very much. What, and as you were putting together this book, what are some of the hurdles that okay. you found that people have to face when they, when they think about reading the Bible? Well, for one thing they have to deal with is, uh, what version do I use? And how do I pick it? What's the right one? And uh, in the book, uh, I tell the story about a friend of mine who said it was easier to buy a car than it was to buy a Bible. He, well, he went to a Christian bookstore, and he went in, and he went in and said, I'd like a Bible. And they just kind of looked at him blankly and then walked him to this wall of books. And he said he had no idea there were that many versions. I think that what the woman who was waiting on him did was brilliant, and and so that's why I tell this story. What she did was she, he just said, well, what's the best one? And she went, that's not the right question. And well, what one do you use? She said, well, I can answer that. And she went and got, I mean, whatever it was, and sat with him, and she had him sit down and start reading in the Gospels and said, you read until you tell me that, that there's something that's getting between you and and seeing Jesus in this and hearing what he has to say. Maybe for you the language is too complicated, maybe it's too simple. There's, there's a bunch of different versions. And she helped him kind of hone in, but her criteria was what helps you get with Jesus. Mm. And and he said he still has that Bible. Mm. Um, now, pages are falling out. It's not the only Bible he has anymore. But he could been, he'd still be there going through all of these if she hadn't given him that kind of guidance. And I think that's brilliant. There are some other hurdles people have. Uh, where do I start? And so we, we walk people through. Here are some, here's kind of a logical way to, to approach the Bible. So you don't wind up, start in Genesis and move into, into through the Pentateuch and you're done. You're just, you're going to get lost in there. Uh, what do you do with all these names and places you can't pronounce? I mean, there's, it's complicated stuff. Yeah. Or it can be. It depends yeah. what you're doing with it. And I, you know, I'm an editor. I think if I, if I were to turn the Bible in today to a publishing house, they would reject it out of hand for being incredibly difficult to use. 
now I, here, can I give you my top yeah. three things? Yeah, go. Okay, for one. For people who have been in the church a while, who have been around the Bible a while, I, I think they're bored. It's really easy to get bored. We know how the stories end. For the most part, we read for entertainment or information. And I'm 6'7", and I always, always root for Goliath to just once <laughs> let him just duck left, run the kid down, skewer him, be done with it. And it never changes. I don't have to think about that when I start that that narrative in Scripture because yeah. I know how it's going to end. Yeah. So we tend to approach the Bible on autopilot. We think we've got things figured out. We we think we have things that we can mentally skip as we go. And, and you know, the truth is none of that's going to be on the test. It's the relationship with Jesus. Mm. So if you're looking for Jesus in there, then you're actually seeing something that's going to be incredibly important to you. Mm. I think there are people who've given up. Um, I don't know if you or your listeners have ever been on that read the Bible in a year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hate those. I hate those. Those are evil. <laughs> that's and, like that's like in January saying, I'm going to go to the health club and go to a class three days a week, and I, I'm going to do it this time. Dang yeah. it. Those last nine years, those were just starters. <laughs> yeah, well, the reason I don't like those is because through no fault of their own, they, they tend to build in guilt and... And also there are cherry-picked verses, you know. T- typically you're not reading really all of the Bible through in a year. And uh, and so you just give up. You just feel defeated by the Bible. That's, mm. That is an obstacle people have. Third, unresolved doubts. I, I think many of us as adults papered over things we were unsure of as we were coming up, if we came up in the church. wasn't safe to ask about it. Um, you raise your hand during a sermon at your own risk uh, hey, I'm sorry, Pastor, but I don't understand that. Can you clarify that some more? Mm-hmm. You'll discover those ushers are also probably bouncers. <laughs> I have a Bible um, at home with uh, that I circle in it the things I either don't understand, which it gets circled a lot, or I just flat out disagree with. Proverbs mm. especially, I look at it and go, well, that's not true in my experience. Mm. And the reason I do that is that's where I need to grow. Mm. So I'm tired of papering over doubts and pretending. I, I want to be able to surface those and say, okay, God, uh, this is something that you, I think, if I'm reading this correctly, you're making a point here, and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, that's good. It's yeah. good. So one of the things that's, that's one of these hurdles that we face, too, is that, especially if you're in the church, is you feel like you should be reading the Bible. It's like one of those things that if you join the club, yeah. you better be doing this, or you, you're going to be out of the club if you're not reading the Bible on a daily basis in something that you we like to call a quiet time, Yes, um, because that's the approved name for whatever that time is in the morning when you're reading the Bible. It's a it's a pretty big should. So what what do you think can help us get out of the mindset of that reading the Bible is a task we have to mark off our list, in order to stay in the club and actually learn to enjoy reading it. I think some of that comes back to where the should comes from. I mean, I, there are definitely times I think God's saying, you, you need to be here. You need to be spending some time in this, and I'm going to show you something uh, in a passage today. I think that's a should I should honor. If that should comes you know, kind of bouncing it back from Mrs. Taylor in third grade Sunday school, and that's the voice that's shutting me. I just tell her to shut up. Mm-hmm. She's probably dead by now anyway. It's just, <laughs> it, I mean, I mean, it, and it may be you who's shooting you as well. Mm-hmm. And I pronounce that very carefully. Yeah, we'll that, make sure in the editing that that S H O U L D I N G. That is worth listening to. 
if you're saying to yourself, that's a voice that you and Jesus can talk about. But it, it's if it's to earn God's favor, that's not going to work. You already got his favor. If it's because you're trying to master material and have all the facts down so you don't look dumb in Bible study, there's a great motivation. Uh, and And the thing is, if you will ask questions and listen, you'll get more out of Scripture mm. that way. So if it's to get rid of the shoulds, that is primarily, I think, a matter of figuring out where they're coming from. Mm. It's good. You've embedded this book with an incredible number of sort of playful experiences and experiments in, in reading the Bible. Give us a, an example, at least one of those, is a good representation from the book, because it's it's not a heavy no, uh, kind of no, plod, no, 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 no. plod through it book. It's, it's full of ways to actually experiment with all this. So give us an example of one. Well, I, I can tell you about one that is, really works well for me. I, I volunteer in children's ministry, and so I routinely have the challenge of taking a passage of Scripture and explaining it to a second grader. And I discovered a long time ago that my real learning happens at about a second grade level. <laughs> I mean, I can always look more up, but the truths are fairly transferable. So a, for me, it's playful. Um, I will sometimes read Scripture and then go teach it to the sofa. You mm. know, how would I explain this to, to somebody who who didn't have the depth of knowledge, didn't have English as a first language. How, what am I going to do with this? How do I play? What's the truth? And what, what can I do with that? Something that um, I've also done is, is taking a look at Scripture in the context of relationship. Now, mm-hmm. usually that means join a Bible study, do your lesson, go in and recite what you mm-hmm. saw. That's not much fun. Well, if there's snacks, it helps, but yeah. that's not much fun. Do a collage instead. Or I was a part of a creative arts group for a number of years, and we traveled, and we wrote a lot of parables and created a lot of parables. So a playful thing for a guy like me or like you, who's a writer, is to take a look at a Bible truth and say, so if I would turn this into a parable so someone else could discover this truth Hmm. in a story, what story would I write? Hmm. And it's just great fun. For me, that's great fun. So I think play is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Just know you're not going to offend Jesus when you take his truth and and try to embrace it in new ways. I have never had him get angry with me. Now, what's interesting is that he's also embedded these same truths you know, all around us. We have parables mm-hmm. all around us oh, all yeah. the time and and as you're reading scripture, thinking about how does this relate to an actual story or observation in my real life? What's like this in mm-hmm. my real life? It's another way to kind of get inside these stories, because we tend to hold these stories or these truths at a distance, at, at arm's length. And so if, if there's a way to connect it into something that we've actu- we're actually experiencing or observing in real life, it can kind of flesh, flesh those things out. And you mentioned that uh, this whole kind of relational aspect of, of reading the Bible, in the end, what we really want is... When we started this off by saying, what's your relationship to the Bible? But we really want this to fuel our relationship with Jesus. So oh, yeah. what, are, what are some ways that reading the Bible can actually do that for us? Okay. One is to, I think, to invite the Holy Spirit to, to walk with you through the, what you're reading. Um, the goal is not to, to cover the material. And, and, you know, when I said that through the Bible in a year is evil, it's not really evil. It's, it's the pace that you have to do and the relentlessness of... I'm going to finish this material mm-hmm. because this is today's stuff. And, yeah. 
and you, you stumble across something or the spirit shines a light onto something partway through, man, you're done for the day. Stop there. Yeah. Stop there. And But and, when you're on a plan, you feel oh, like you got to keep going. Got to keep going, man, because tomorrow, otherwise tomorrow I got to do Psalm 119 plus, you know, something yeah. else. So it has to be... I think I think the Bible, if we're going to have it be relational, it has to be in the context of relationship with Jesus. Hmm. Let Him show you something. Let the Holy Spirit do that, and then just simply, just simply stop and celebrate and dig and play and and let it speak to you. That's great. Thanks, Michael. Again, uh, just a reminder to everybody, and we'll, we'll mention this a couple of times throughout the podcast today that that uh, these three books are available actually today, the day that this uh, podcast gets posted. They are available, and it's the, the first one that we uh, focused on the last time we had Michael on was How Do I Pray? This one is How Do I Read the Bible? And we're going to do one more of these in the near future called How Do I Know God's Will? And that'll be fun to do that one. Though you may not be aware, we've added a fourth, which is How to Be in a Church Bowling League and Still Remain a Christian. Yeah, that is pragmatic. I'm out Talk there. about a pragmatic resource the Church needs. Yeah. I'm out there tonight practicing in lane 14. <laughs> Thanks again, Michael. Thank you, Rick. All right. So the key here, that it, the last thing we were talking about there with Michael, was how can we move our engagement with the Bible from kind of a head thing to a heart thing? And uh, that's the migration that, that needs to happen here. So um, I, I have a little story for you uh, that is sort of a tipping point, pivotal story in my whole the whole arc of my life. When I was a freshman in college, I developed a, a a medical issue I won't go into depth with because it would take too long, but I developed a medical issue that was actually life-threatening for me. And uh, my my mom had to come up and bring me home from college, and I had to have emergency surgery, and I had to recover at home for a while, and I missed out on some of my freshman year in college because of this horrific thing that happened to me, and I felt so disoriented and and that you know it's disorienting enough to leave home and go to college, but then I had this thing happen, and it was really a struggle. I felt isolated and disconnected from people, and trying to work my way back into this community. And during that time, I I had I made some some new friends who were part of a fraternity that I eventually ended up joining. This fraternity had its charter pulled the previous year or two years before because they were such a horrible fraternity, but the only guys that they let stay were these five guys who happened to be Christians. And I don't know how these Christian guys ended up at a fraternity that had to have its charter pulled because they were so bad, but these are the five guys that were left, and they restarted the fraternity with a kind of a wholly different mindset, and I happened to meet these guys. And I started uh, getting to know them, I really liked them, and a number of them went to this little charismatic church that was in town, and I had never been to a charismatic church, but I liked these guys and so I was open to where they were going, so I started going to church with them at this charismatic church. And I had never been to a church service, by the way, that lasted two hours, you know, or where the, the, the pastor spoke for more than an hour uh, on a normal basis. It was just such a cultural, uh, you know, sort of a whiplash for me. But while I was there, I, one, one thing I recognized is that for all of the deficits that I discovered going to that charismatic church— one great asset was that these people actually believed that Jesus would interact with them in a normal, everyday way, that it, he wasn't confined to a book. And so I was really magnetically attracted to this, and at one point, uh, several points, they asked if 
anyone would like a deeper filling of the Holy Spirit in their life, and one day I decided I did. And so they prayed over me, and in a charismatic church, what they're praying over you for is uh, uh, to speak in tongues and all this other crazy stuff that you've heard about or maybe experienced. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of surreal for me to go through this experience, but one of the things that, uh, that happened during that time is I actually invited the Spirit to come into a deeper place in my life, and that ask was honored. I mean, when I left that day, the biggest change that happened to me was not any of the other stuff that you think about in a charismatic church. The biggest thing that happened to me was it was almost like the Spirit flipped a switch inside of me and gave me an immediate hunger for reading the Bible. It was no longer a task or a responsibility I was supposed to do. I had an insatiable hunger for reading the Bible. I couldn't get enough of it. And that flipped switch has continued to this day. I love reading the Bible. It's, it's, like, it's like eating a good meal. That's what it feels like. So how can that sort of relationship to the Bible be an everyday reality for all of us. I can't imagine not having that relationship with the Bible now in my life. I don't think of it as at all the way I used to. And I thought, well, one, one good way for us to kind of sink into this a little bit is to pay closer attention to how Jesus related to the Bible himself. And there's a kind of an iconic story after the resurrection of Jesus that I thought would be interesting for us to take a look at. This story is called The Road to Emmaus, and just to set it up a little bit, this is in Luke 24, by the way, if you're not driving a car at this moment, you want to flip over to Luke 24, you can do that. But the, the on-ramp into this story is that uh, Jesus has been crucified and buried in a cave with a stone rolled across the cave, and early in the morning, the next day, the, uh, on the third day, the women, a couple of women went to the tomb of Jesus, expecting to have to recruit somebody to help them roll away the stone. They had spices with them. They were going to prepare Jesus' body with these spices, as was the custom uh, back in, in, in ancient Israel. And they arrive at the tomb, and the stone is already rolled away. And they go inside, and, and it's empty. There's no body of Jesus in there. And, but there are two people that shock the heck out of them that are there in that cave. And it turns out these are two angels. Can you imagine? You go into a tomb, the body's not there, but two alive men are there, and how did they get there, and who are they? And it turns out they're angels, and they tell them, you know, they're all excited, because everything that Jesus said has come true. And they simply remind them, hey, remember when Jesus said this and this and this? That's all that's happened here. He actually meant what he said, (laughs) that he was going to rise from the dead again. But this, if you can imagine it, this is a mind-blowing thing to try to get your arms around. So these women uh, race out of the tomb, and they run back, and they tell the disciples, and of course the disciples are just like you and me. They treat it like these women are spouting nonsense. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. Have you lost your mind? There's got to be another explanation for this. The only one, by the way, in Luke's account here, who doesn't react that way is Peter. He's fascinated by this, and he runs to the tomb. He wants to see for himself. I love Peter. He's already well on his way to coming back to the Jesus he rejected. He can't get Jesus out of his bones. And if Jesus actually is alive again, he has to know. So he runs to the tomb to see if indeed it's empty. And then right after this, this crazy little story about the, the road to Emmaus, 
so the the picture is we nobody knows where Jesus is right now. His body isn't there. The angel said he's risen from the dead, but nobody's seen him or knows where he is yet. So on that same day, there's a couple of his disciples are walking to this little village of Emmaus, which is a short distance away. It's probably, oh, um, about uh, a two-hour walk. It's seven miles. So it's a two-hour, three-hour walk, depending on how fast you walk. So think about that in terms of how long this conversation was. So let me pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 24 of Luke. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had just happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And he asked them, well, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. Now, by the way, I'm just going to pause there. Cleopas is one of the two disciples that is walking along. He's referencing you must be the only person in Jerusalem, which means that that Jesus joined them shortly after they left Jerusalem. So they had a good two or three hours ahead of them before they got to Emmaus. Just keep that in mind. So they say "You, you must be the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. And Jesus says, what things? Well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. Now listen to how the Cleopas describes Jesus. Here, here's what he says. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. So just right there you know that, oh, this is not that surprising. His disciples still did not get who Jesus really was because the way Cleopas describes Jesus to this guy that he doesn't realize is Jesus is that he's a prophet who did miracles, and he was a mighty teacher, but he does not describe him as a Messiah, because that dream is over for these guys. So we'll pick up again. So this is Cleopas talking still. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Now we had hoped he was the Messiah, had hoped he was the Messiah, who had come to rescue Israel, and this all happened three days ago. Well, then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Can you imagine sharing this with a stranger? Like, yeah, I'm not on drugs right now. This is actually what happened today. These women said this happened. So then Cleopas continues, Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Now, then Jesus said to them, <laughs> I just love this. This is his response to these guys. He says, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? Well, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all of the Scriptures the things concerning himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus, and the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us, since it's getting late. So he went home with them, and as as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it, and then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and at that moment he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? 
Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. So they went to Emmaus, but they decided, no, we got to go back and tell our friends what just happened. So within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, and then they said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. So this is an extraordinary day in the history of the world, and a fascinating little story about um, Jesus encountering these two guys and them not knowing who he was. And then he proceeds to uh, immerse them in the scriptural narrative uh, that all points to him in the end, and he kind of reveals to them the story that they didn't realize. So here's some observations about this story of Jesus encountering these guys on their way to Emmaus. First of all, these are people, just like us, who are trying to understand the narrative they're living in. They thought that the story of their life was going a certain direction, and they thought the Messiah that Jesus promised that he was, was going to do certain things in their life, and then it didn't end up that way. And all of a sudden, when that happens, you, you realize, hey, that narrative I'm living in isn't what the one that I thought it was, and what is the story I'm living in anyway, then? So these guys are wrestling with, what, what is our story? We thought we had this figured out, and we thought we knew where the story was going, then it took this huge you know, left turn, so what is the narrative that we're living in? And that is a great question for us to answer in general as people. What is the narrative I'm living in? And if you look at your interior conversation and the way you think about your life uh, in a slowed-down way, it's good to actually get a piece of paper out and write down a sentence that describes the narrative you think you're living in. So if you're a character in the story, what kind of story is this? Where's the story going? What is the story about? We uh, subtly and in a kind of a hidden way do this all the time. We tell ourselves the kind of story that we're living in. So that's what these guys are doing, and just like us, they've come to the wrong conclusions about the narrative they're living in, and they need Jesus' help to understand the truth about the story they're really living in. So they've made some conclusions based on their expectations and their limited observations, and they've said, here's our story, we thought this guy was the one, he's not the one, obviously, because he's not around anymore, they killed him. He was a great prophet and a teacher, though, by the way, they just didn't get who Jesus really was, and so therefore they don't understand the story that they were living as followers of Jesus. And the third thing is they don't see that the whole of the Bible is focused on Jesus himself. In our, my interview with Michael, we talked about the blue letters in the Jesus-centered Bible, that's the reason that we decided to do that, is to try to highlight how all of the Bible ends up focusing on Jesus himself, including the Old Testament. There's so much in the Old Testament that is clearly pointing to Jesus. And, and these are the places, by the way, I said that the blue letters had never been done in a Bible before, but actually, um, well, Jesus did it on the road to Emmaus. <laughs> he took the Old Testament and he showed these two disciples how all of the Old Testament—it wasn't, wasn't known by the Old Testament at the time, obviously, it was the only scriptures they had. So the prophets and the law, what Jesus did with that, that part of the Old Testament was simply show them how it all pointed to him and precursed him, and uh, showed uh, the reader exactly what Jesus would be like, and what he would do, and what would happen as a result. So. That's why we put the blue letters in the Old Testament to kind of highlight those places, and I think some of those same places 
Jesus must have highlighted to these guys on the road to Emmaus to try to show them that, hey, this story is really about the Messiah. And as the confusion that you have right now can be wiped away if you if you read the Bible in terms of a story that's pointing to me. So the fourth thing to observe, I think, about this Road to Emmaus story is that Jesus is focused on pointing out who he is and what he's come to do by simply referencing the on-ramp into what's happening right then. And the on-ramp is thousands of years of the story of God being lived out through the Law and the Prophets. So now we have two markers for this story, and we call them the story going forward from this point on the road to Emmaus. We call these two markers collectively the New Testament, but it's actually in two parts. First is the story of Jesus, told from four perspectives, of course, in the Gospels. So that's the purpose of the Gospels, to tell the story of Jesus as he walked on the earth from four different perspectives. And then there's the second part of what we call the New Testament, which is the story of the first followers of Jesus over the first century, where they were living and following him. What it looked like to live as a pig, uh, to use the language on this podcast. A pig is references a chapter in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life. I think it's chapter 5, where it's called uh, Living a Pig's Life, and it references how at the dinner meal, um, the chicken may give an egg for—well, let's, let's use breakfast, since uh, we eat bre- eggs for breakfast. The chicken might give an egg for breakfast, a part of, of himself or herself, but a pig gives his all. Uh, if you're going to eat ham or bacon, the pig's given up everything for that meal, and so that's why we call our special Facebook page for people who are fans of this podcast, the Pigs page. And by the way, if you go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com or JesusCenteredLife.com and go to our podcast section, um, you can join the Pigs as well, that private Facebook page that is a community of people who have self-identified as people who want to be all in with Jesus. So there's a link there that you can follow and request to join the page, and we'll get you in there. But this rest of the New Testament after the Gospels is really the story of the followers of Jesus who are all pigs. They, they went all in with Jesus. So though that's, that's how to read the entire story of the Bible, is to, is to see it all sort of orbiting around the hub who is Jesus. So how can we practically renovate the way we read the Bible based on Jesus' approach? Now, Michael has given some great uh, little inroads to that. Let me add to that uh, with uh, and re-emphasize some things here as we wrap up the podcast today. The first thing to do is, is coming out of my own story, it's not as hard as it sounds, to simply ask the Spirit to fill you up. In John chapter 14, verse 16 through 26, is this fascinating little section where uh, Jesus is telling his disciples about the coming Spirit— and that this is going to be so good when the Spirit comes, and, and that the Spirit's job is to teach us everything and remind us of everything Jesus has told us. So we have this promise of the Spirit who can live within us and help us to understand everything we don't understand about Jesus, not only to help guide, guide us and enlighten us, but give us also the power to follow Him. So when this happens— Reading the story of the Bible goes from a discipline to a hunger, like in my own story. So the first thing I would say is, simply like a little kid, 
ask for a deeper experience of the Spirit in your life, a deeper filling of the Spirit in your life. You don't have to go to a charismatic church and have people lay hands on you and pray for it. You can. Uh, you can ask people to pray for a deeper filling of the Spirit in your life, but you can do it too, just like a little kid. Just simply, honestly say, Spirit, I want to, to, you to uh, immerse yourself more fully in me, because the Spirit is the one who creates the hunger for the story of Jesus. The Spirit is the one who gives us a hankering for more and more and more of the story of Jesus. So that's one thing to do. Ask the Spirit to fill you. And then the second thing is to slow down when you read the Bible. We've talked about how a lot of the Bible reading plans sort of subtly make you speed up, and we're saying here, slow way down. And if you can't do that when you're reading a Bible reading plan, then don't read a Bible reading plan, because the, the point of reading the Bible is to slow down, approach it devotionally, invite Jesus into your reading. Whenever you come up against something that you that kind of makes you tilt your head, you don't quite understand right off the bat, or uh, it, it portrays Jesus in a way you're not used to seeing, and instead of just blowing past that, slow down, pay attention, and ask for help from the Spirit to help you understand what's going on. The only way to do that is to not read it so quickly. Uh, a lot of people that I talk to now who have a richer, deeper relationship with Jesus, when I ask them, what's changed in the way you read the Bible? One consistent thing they say is, I read it more slowly. Coverage isn't the goal any longer. It's trying to understand the Jesus the Bible is pointing to. So another thing to think about is, just as we don't overeat, I mean, you, you might, my wife makes an incredible chicken scampi. I mean, it is so good. It's my daughter Lucy's favorite meal. And uh, this, this weekend is my daughter Emma's 15th birthday, so we're going to have 10 15-year-olds in our house uh, this weekend, and instead of going out for pizza or whatever, we're going to make a massive batch of chicken scampi. Well, this is so good, but it's got a lot of butter in it, and it's really easy to overeat it and feel horrible afterwards. Well, just in the same way we don't want to overeat what's really good, we don't want to overread the Bible, meaning don't gorge on it. Eat a healthy meal. So go slow, uh, pause, and savor what you're reading, and don't read too much. Leave room to chew on truths during the day. Uh, uh, this is especially important when you come up against something that is hard to understand or uh, catches you, catches you by off guard. Stop there. Don't keep going. And just plant that little seed in your brain and chew on it during the day, and let the Spirit unfold for you what that thing is all about. So I was talking with our friend Steph Hilbert the other day, and she brought up a question I thought was great. Can you decide to not read the Bible and still have a relationship with Jesus? Wow. So that's like a question we don't ever consider, because of course the Bible is our one of our, prim our primary way of understanding Jesus and being in relationship with Him, but could you, could you have a relationship with Jesus if you didn't have the Bible, if you just stopped reading the Bible? And I think the answer needs to be, from Jesus' point of view, the role of the Spirit in our lives is to show us Him, to be an everyday, every-moment guide into the heart and personality of Jesus. So the Bible is a tremendous help with that. But we also need to cultivate a holistic relationship with Him. So 
Uh, what I'm saying is a kind of a radical thing here. Don't read the Bible unless you feel like it. So this is why we ask the Spirit to come and give us a hunger for it. We want to take it out of the realm of a task or a discipline and instead make it something we savor, like dessert after the meal. So ask the Spirit to bring that in your life. So think about yourself on a wide lane where you're not afraid of the dire consequences of what would happen if you didn't read the Bible one day and instead focused on your conversational relationship with Jesus, for instance, or leaning into the Spirit that day. I think what you'll find is a greater hunger for reading the Bible and a more often turning to the Bible and a, and a much more expectant and excited view of the Bible as this happens. It changes it from a discipline to a, a savoring situation. So, And then the last thing is, and this, this won't come as a shock if you're listening to this podcast, but simply pay better attention to Jesus when you're reading the Bible. So in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, I give lots of ways to pay better attention to Jesus. One of them is something I call reading filters, where you, you notice something about Jesus. Oh, he seems, to, he seems to really not like rote things, like rote prayers or rote rules that people follow. So then you use that as a filter. I'm going to watch and see how many times Jesus responds or reacts to somebody doing something rote. And so you, you read Jesus using a filter like that, and it really unlocks something for you. So, so you can pay better attention to Jesus by using a reading filter like that, or uh, as we've mentioned, you can stop at the mud puddles and jump into the mud puddles instead of over them. So a mud puddle is when something you come up against doesn't make sense immediately, and you, you, instead of jumping over it, you jump into it. And then you can ask why questions instead of what questions. And that, what I mean by that is whenever you see Jesus doing or saying something, you ask, why did he do that or say that? Instead of asking just what did he do, you try to get at his heart by asking why. So there's a few on-ramps into reading the Bible differently. I hope that at least one of these things has kind of resonated with you. Whatever it is, you can forget about the rest, just go with whatever's resonated with you, and try to live that out today. Find a way to live that out. Hey gang, thanks for listening. Next week we'll have Thomas Christensen, the author of The Unreasonable Jesus, on, so that'll be really fun to talk to him. Uh, that book is coming out uh, shortly on March 6th, so we're going to have an interesting conversation about what a shocking person Jesus is and how that translates into our everyday life. And uh, remember, you can find out more about everything we talked about today, uh, but in further detail on paying-ridiculous-attention-to-jesus.com. Just find our podcast section. You're looking for Season 3, Episode 9. And don't forget, uh, releasing exactly today— these Jesus-centered practical guides, how to pray, how to know God's will, and how to read the Bible. So check those out on Amazon or group.com, and we also have a link on our podcast page to them. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.